Alright, so we're in this series, and we've been doing this for a number of weeks. As you can see on the screen, the title of our series is The One Year Bible. And we called it The One Year Bible uh, because there is actually a a thing called the one-year Bible. For those of you who don't know, it's a, a, a taking of the scripture and dividing into 365 readings, where you can read one each day, a section of the Old Testament, the New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs each day. And uh, we like that not because we think that's the only way or maybe necessarily even the best way to read the Bible, but Brad and I and Rich, too, have all been blessed and impacted by reading this uh, this format of the Bible. And so we thought, hey, let's present this to you all and what we're going to do is encourage each person to uh, get their Bible and read it every day. That's one of the key habits of being a disciple. We've talked about that before. How are you going to build something without reading the instructions? How are we going to be a disciple without reading God's instruction manual, which is the Bible? And so we've been trying to encourage that and encouraging you to come weekly and ready to share something from the Word. We're going to pass on breaking into groups today, but I would encourage you when the service is over um, to share something you read from the Word with somebody this week. So we're going to have one more week of this. As I said, Brad will um, teach from this next week, and then we'll be into our... um, Palm Sunday and Easter series about the resurrection after that. So, I just thought, as we've been doing every week, I'm going to share with you some thoughts I had in reading from the Word this week. So, uh, for those of you who've been doing the one-year Bible, you know we've turned the corner uh, in the Gospels and, and turned into Luke here. So I have a couple of thoughts from a couple different passages from Luke this week. So the first is, as you can see on the screen, from Luke chapter 4, verses 3 to 10, and I'll go ahead and read that. To you now, I didn't do the whole passage. I'm just focusing on a certain part of it, and you'll you'll see that here. So, Jesus has gone into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and the devil said to Jesus, "If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread." There's an interaction, and then a little bit later, the devil took him up, Jesus up, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you, Jesus, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. There's another interaction there, and then a little bit later, Satan goes and he he took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." But later, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. So as you can see, my focus here in reading this was, what was the devil doing? Right? Just maybe a different way. We we like to focus on on Jesus' response, and we'll talk about that some here. But I want to think about what, what is the devil doing. And so my observation from that is, as it pertains to temptation... I should take note of Satan's methods. I should take note of Satan's methods. And I think when we look at this passage, obviously there's three temptations. I think what we have are three different techniques. Satan has three ways 
three techniques. I don't know, maybe he has more, but in this passage we really see three techniques. And he's going to use them on you, and he's going to use them on me. If he was going to use them on the Son of God, I I think we're all fair game, and he uses them on us. And so here's things I think Satan does. Satan tempts me first. He tempts me by appealing to good needs. What do we mean by that? Well, obviously he says in the first temptation, command this stone to become bread. So there was Jesus, just some of that background. Jesus had been in the desert for 40 days. And I've been to Israel and I've been to the place where they think that he was tempted. And I tell you what, it is, a, it is like classic desert. Like there's nothing there. And I don't know about you, but I would be pretty hungry after 40 days. I'm pretty hungry when I miss one meal or when dinner is maybe an hour late. I'm getting a little hungry. So I can't even imagine how hungry Jesus must have been after 40 days. And Satan says, hey, you have a need. You have a need. You're hungry. And you're God. Why don't you command this stone to become bread? Why would that be a sin? Have you ever asked that question? Why would that be a sin to command a stone to become bread? He's God. He's hungry. He has a need. He ought to fulfill it. So the sin here is obviously not having a need. There's not a sin in needing bread. There's not a sin in needing something that we need as humans. Food, shelter, clothing, whatever it is. There's no sin in having a need. But we look at Jesus' response. It clues us in. Jesus responds and he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone. And in Deuteronomy 8 what we see is that this passage refers to how the Israelites disobeyed God when it came to dealing with the basic need of food. They were hungry, just like Jesus was hungry. And what did the Israelites do? They took matters into their own hands. They took matters into their own hands. They rejected God's authority. And they rejected God's providence. Instead of relying upon God to provide for their needs, they took it into their own hands. And so what is Satan saying here? He's tempting Jesus to reject God's authority. He's tempting Jesus to say, Hey, you have a need? Meet it. Don't rely on God. Rely on yourself. And so this appeal to a good need, right? It's a good need. He's hungry. He needs to eat. Something wrong with eating. This good need, this appeal to a good need, which something that in and of itself isn't sinful, is a means of tempting me to reject God's provision and authority. And so I need to be aware, and you need to be aware in our lives of saying, I need that, and so going and getting that isn't sin. It might be. If I'm rejecting God's authority and rejecting God's provision, it is a sin. And so the question, my application question to ask, for each of us to ask is, am I worshiping the need? Or am I worshiping the provider? It's like Brad talked about, we set up idols in our lives. If I set up a need in my life as an idol that I'm worshiping instead of the one who can provide that need. And so that's the first method that Satan uses to tempt us. The second one is this. He appeals to good ends. The second temptation, he takes Jesus up and he says, Look, see all the kingdoms of the world? They're mine. (laughs) They're mine. 
and I know you want them. It'll all be yours. It'll all be yours. Jesus was on a mission to save the people of the earth who were under Satan's dominion. He was on a mission, and here was an opportunity to fulfill that mission. And I believe Jesus knew what it was he was going to have to walk through to accomplish his mission, and here Satan was giving him a shortcut, saying, you can get to the ends, you can get to that ends, and avoid all of that stuff, and all you got to do is bow down and worship me. And so why would this be a sin? Jesus was on his way to sacrifice himself for the people. It was Jesus' mission. It was his ends. Satan wasn't putting up some other end. It was the end he was headed for. Well, we look at Jesus' response and he says, No, should worship God alone. Should worship God alone. And that really should be the heart of our prayer. Right? We think about praying, we think about needs, and we think about ends, and we're, a lot of times we're praying towards an end. Lord, help me to this thing. Heal me of this thing. Lead me to this thing. Provide me of this job. And yet the heart of our prayer should not be what, but who. Who. The Lord's Prayer tells us that. Jesus gives us instruction. And uh, just so you know, when we, we're going to follow up our Easter series and we're going to do a multi-part series on the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5-7. through 7. And in that, Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer, He says, this is how you should pray. And one of the most important parts of that prayer, I believe, is where He says, how you should pray is, God, Thy will be done. Thy will be done should undergird everything we pray. Because when we do that, the focus of our prayer is on God. It's not on the ends. And here was Satan tempting Jesus to focus on the ends. And I think when we pray this way, what we're going to find is that if we focus on God, we're less concerned about the ends. And we continue to worship Him, even if it may not end the way we hope it does. See, when we become focused on the outcome instead of on the object of our... If we become focused on the outcome instead of the object, we begin worshiping that good thing. We begin worshiping the creation instead of the creator. So we want to worship the greater God who gives us those good things. We've got to beware then of saying, if this thing accomplishes a good purpose... It's not sin. There's a temptation for us to think, I forget about the means, I'm going to get to that end, which is a good end. It's not where our worship should be. Our application, am I worshiping the ends or am I worshiping the giver? And so the third way that Satan tempts Jesus and he tempts us as well is by appealing to good means. You probably saw that coming, didn't you? We got the needs, we got the ends, and now we got the means. And then that third temptation listed in Luke 4, Satan quotes scripture. He says, For it is written. And he's quoting from Psalm 91. And Satan knew Jesus was bounded by Scripture. 
all the prophecies and all the commands and all the other things that are bound up in the scripture, Jesus had to obey them because he was God. He was bound up to those. And really, Jesus' life is a model for us of how to live according to the Bible. And so why would it be a sin to obey the Bible? Why would it be a sin to take this verse and listen to it and do what Satan said he should do? Jesus kind of had to fulfill the prophecies. He had to obey this. But his response is telling. He says, don't test the Lord thy God. Don't test the Lord thy God. And so the temptation here, I think, is to decontextualize Scripture to meet your needs or to meet your wants. To say something to the effect of, I really want this thing to be true, and so I found a scripture that kind of backs up the thing I want to be true. See, like I said, the scripture quoted by Satan was from Psalm 91, and ultimately, was that scripture born out in Jesus? Did his life fulfill that prophecy and obey those commands? The answer is yes, it did. Jesus fulfilled those things. But it was in God's plan and God's timing. Not in Jesus' own timing. Not in Satan's timing. It was in Jesus's. If Jesus had leapt from the pinnacle of the temple, he would have hijacked God's plan. And he would have been misapplying the scripture to his situation. And so Satan was tempting Jesus to ignore the broader context of God's word. And I think he tempts us to do that as well. He tempts us to do that as well. When we decontextualize scripture, we lose sight of God's bigger plan. And we start to conform scripture to our own will instead of to our will to the scripture. Do you see that comparison? Do you see that difference? We need to strive to worship the truth. What is the truth? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the truth. Scripture is the truth about the truth. We worship Jesus, not the scripture. And I know this can be challenging, and so I found five suggestions from uh, John Piper that I thought were really helpful for avoiding this temptation. You can see them there on the screen. The first one, do not believe everyone who can quote you a text. History is strewn with cults who twisted the scriptures to their own destruction. And you can see 2 Peter 3.16 for a verse about that. Second suggestion, read widely in the Bible and ask yourself continually how this part fits with that part and that part with this part. It is when the pieces start to fit together that we are most secure from distortion. Third suggestion is to read theological books that the decades and centuries have proved to be deep solid and lasting. And I'm not a big book reader myself. Uh, I I, I like like to try to stick to the Bible. But there is a time to say, hey, this has been around a long time. And how have Christians historically understood this? And there's a value in that. The fourth thing he suggests is to fast and pray that God will open our eyes to see true and wonderful things in his word. And the fifth thing is, you may not know everything, but obey what you do. Obey what you do understand, and then you will understand more. And so we got to beware when we think of this type of temptation. we got to beware of saying, it's not a sin if it's in the Bible. If we can pull things out of context, 
And we can say, hey, this is what it says, but that's not really what it says. We can't hide behind, is this in the Bible? So my application in that is to ask myself, am I worshiping the Word or am I worshiping its author? And so those are the three temptations, I think, that are outlined here in Luke 4. One is an appeal to a good needs. Another is an appeal to a good ends. Another one is an appeal to a good means. But I think a key way to avoid temptation is to do what Jesus said. Amen. If you want to avoid temptation, you obey him. And that brings us to the next passage in Luke that I read this week in the Bible. It's from Luke chapter 6, verses 46 to 49. And Jesus is speaking and he says this. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Now, those of you who know me know that my background is in architecture. And so I just love to put architectural pictures on the screen. This is whole foundation detail I drew at one point in time. I just had this. I like to throw this up there. A foundation is the most important part of a building. You cannot see it, but it holds it up and it holds it down. That when the winds come and there's a violent event, when there is a violent event, an earthquake, a windstorm, a flood, a snowstorm, the foundation holds the building up. And so, in the same way, a spiritual foundation anchors a soul to the truth in order to keep it upright during life's trials. Now, in 2008, there was a hurricane that hit Texas. Hurricane Ike. And it came across a small town called Gilcrest, which was right on the coast. And it wiped it out. And here's a picture. And you'll see a house there, and then you see a lot of barren lands. And basically the hurricane, the, the gulf there would be on the right side of the picture, and there's sort of a harbor, an inlet kind of on the east side. And the, the hurricane there came from right to left. And you can see giant score marks in the ground as a 14-foot wall of water came in with the storm surge. And there was a bunch more houses in this picture before the hurricane. And after the hurricane, there was one. Now, why do you suppose that house is still there? Well, they learned some lessons. There was another hurricane, Hurricane Rita, that had come through about four years before, and they rebuilt this house. And they sunk a foundation down, from what I could tell from my research, about 20 feet into the ground. So you see the height of the house. There's parts of the house that go at least that high down into the ground. And the flood came, and the stream broke against that house. And what happened? It stood. But what about the other houses? They're gone. And I think there's a picture here of exactly what Jesus was talking about. And I think there's two observations I want to make from this parable to encourage us this morning. The first one is this. It's that the flood, 
The stream that breaks against the house is universal. Every single one of us experiences the flood. And what is the flood? Obviously, from the text, the flood are trials and adversities and hardships. See, everybody here is going through trials. Sometimes I'll do that. I know just about everybody here, which is good. I probably should. I'll stand in the back and pray for you all. And I'll look out and I'll say, I know what's going on with that person and that couple and that family and that one and that one. And it's trials galore. So if you sit here this morning and say, I'm the only one experiencing trials, you're wrong. Every single one of us is going through these. And so the flood is universal. Every single one of us experiences it. But how are we going to respond? When we have an emotional response to trials, the flood wipes us out. It's because we don't have a foundation. If that's our response, we don't have a foundation. And so when we're facing trials like job loss, sickness, parenting challenges, death, estrangement, depression, so on and so forth... Christ allows us to pass through those trials and not be destroyed. But we have to have the right foundation. We have to have the right foundation. And so my my application from this part of it is to say, do I see trials and suffering as part of my Christian life or not? Am I thinking I'm going to follow Christ and not have trials? That's not really what this one says. Jesus is pretty clear. We're going to have trials. We're going to have hardships. We're not going to be able to avoid this stuff. And so do I embrace those as part of my Christian life or not? So the second thing we've got to draw from this parable is that the outcome of trials in your life is predicated not on whether you hear the words of Jesus, but on whether you obey them. It's very easy to go out and and hear the words of Christ. You can go to the internet and hear all different kinds of people talking about the Bible. You can come on Sunday and hear me and Brad and Rich and others talking about the Bible. But are you doing what it said? Are you doing what it said? Because that's what this parable tells us. It tells us that the outcome of our trials in our life is predicated on obeying Him. Now, you may have heard or maybe you've even asked that question before. What about people who never hear the good news? What about people who never hear? What about those people in the deep, dark jungles of Africa, right? Have you ever heard that question? Ever asked that question? It's okay if you ask that question. But I think most of the time, that is a smokescreen question. Because the issue is not really about those other people, whether they've heard. The issue is, hey, you've heard and what are you doing about it? And if I can say, well, someone hasn't heard that I don't have to deal with whether or not I've, I'm doing the things that Christ has asked me to do. And there's a good answer for those people. We're not going to talk about that today. I can talk about that some other time. But the question is for you. Are you doing what Christ said? We're reading the Bible. We're going through the one-year Bible. We're reading your scripture every day. And are you taking an application and doing it every day? Or not? And if you're not... The outcome of the trials in your life that you're going to have is going to be very different than if you take the truth and you apply it and you put it into practice. Some other verses that support this. John 14, 21, Jesus says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them, 
is the one who loves me. It's the one who loves me. Do you love Jesus or do you profess to love Jesus? Are you doing what he says? In James, he says, I love this from the King James Version, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Are you a doer of the word or are you a hearer only? There's a drastic difference between choosing to obey Christ or not. When we go back to our verse, he says, The flood could not shake that house because it had been well built. Is your house well built? There's a picture there of permanence, of continuance, of safety, of blessing. And it's predicated upon doing what Christ has asked you to do. On the other hand, the person who didn't build the foundation, it says immediately the house fell and the ruin of that house was great. Are you doing what Christ has done? Has, has told you to do? If not... The trials come, the ruin of your house will be great. It is a picture of disaster, of ruin, of tragedy. We don't want to see that. So ask yourself this, am I doing what the Bible says I should do? Or am I just risking destruction when the trials of life arrive? Am I calling Jesus Lord, Lord, but not doing what he says? So my application for us to take home today was this. Am I obeying what God says to do or not? If I'm not, I'm headed for hard times. If I am, hard times are going to come, but I'm going to walk through it. Because Christ has said, build your life on my foundation and you'll make it through. So that's what I took from the word this week and I think it ties right back in. Brad and I didn't plan that, but I think as, as Brad was talking about, hey, we got to worship Christ and not idols. Part of worshiping Christ is obeying Him. And part of avoiding idols is to, to walk away from the temptation and understand that temptation when it rolls into our lives. I'll go ahead and pray and close our time here. God, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to earth to live a sinless life, to die in our place, to rise again and defeat death, to pay the penalty that's due to us for our sin. I thank you for the free gift of salvation that you've provided through him, a free gift that we need only accept. And yet, Lord, we know that when we accept the free gift of salvation, we are making you our Savior, the Savior from our sin and the penalty of death, the penalty of eternity separated from you in hell. And yet, Lord, we also know that we invite, when we invite you into our lives, we're making you Lord of our life. And God, we recognize that when we submit to that authority and we submit to that lordship over our lives, there is a need for us to do what you say to do. In the same way, we can't go to work for somebody and ignore what they ask us to do and do our own thing. Lord, we, we've made you the boss. If we've received that free gift of salvation, we've made you the boss, Lord. And you, you tell us very clearly here in Luke that we need to obey you. We need to do what you ask of us. 
Not because that's going to get us to eternal life, but because when the trials of life come, we'll stand. Like that house in Texas, we'll still be standing when the flood has come through. And Lord, we recognize that we have to walk in a world where the enemy is out to get us. He's out to tempt us. And he's crafty. And he's clever. And he's wicked. And he's going to appeal to things in our lives that are good. He's going to appeal to our needs, our good needs, the things that we do need. But Lord, help us to trust you to provide our needs, not in ourselves. Help us to worship you in that. We know Satan is going to want us to worship the ends, the result of those things, and want us to bypass worshiping you and following you to get to what we think it is that we're supposed to have. Lord, we want to resist that temptation and worship you and walk in the journey that you have for us towards whatever the ends are. And Lord, we know Satan is going to want to use Scripture and twist it so that we think we're walking down the right path. Lord, help us to have wisdom. Help us to understand the Scripture, to see it in its context, to see it in its entirety. Help us to obey the things that are clear. And we trust that you're going to give us more understanding as we do that. We just declare to you this morning that we love you. We thank you for your word, for the instruction manual that you've given us. Lord, my prayer for each person here, myself included, is that this week we would walk in greater obedience to the commands of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.